Why are we making the doctor fill it out for the 23rd time? Grab it from the internet. Let's go use the stuff that's already out there. Let's get a more accurate provider directory built not because there's one database to rule them all, but because we can read all the existing openly available databases and render judgment. That's a great use case. Let's go there. Welcome to the Better Care Podcast, where we tell the stories of clinicians, healthcare leaders, and innovators who are improving the way clinicians work and deliver care. On today's episode, Evidence Care's Dr. Brian Fengler interviews Anish Chopra of Care Journey. Anish shares his top takeaways from the Vive Health Conference, his journey to the White House as the first U.S. Chief Technology Officer, examples of how government policy and healthcare can work together, and a charge to health system CIOs to leverage open technology. This episode was recorded in front of a live virtual audience. Enjoy this conversation with Anish Chopra. I'm very happy to have with me Anish Chopra, president of Care Journey. Um, And Anish, uh, I'm going to introduce you a little here formally with your bio. I'm probably going to leave out like half of the amazing things you've done, but Anish is obviously most recognized as the uh, first chief technology officer of the United States under President Obama, author of the book Innovative State. Uh, You obtained your bachelor's from Johns Hopkins and your Master's from the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, you've served as the Managing Director of Healthcare Technology Strategy at the Advisory Board. Mm. You co-founded Hunch Analytics. Prior to joining the Obama administration, you served as Virginia's Secretary of Technology. Uh, you're on the board of the Healthcare Cost Institute and New Jersey Innovation Institute. And you speak regularly on the economy and job market, focusing on sort of the intersection of technology and healthcare. And so you're going um, deep on the bio. Thank you. (laughs) So super excited to have you with us today. And, um, you know, tell me a little bit. I know you were just in in Nashville uh, earlier this week for the Vive conference. Kind of how are things with that? And and what are some of the things that uh, you got out of that conference? Well, there were uh, three things that I took away from the conference. And let me maybe set the stage before I kind of get to the answer. Let me give you bias going in. We're at a crossroads at the moment. There's a technological crossroad, which is we've been waiting a decade for interoperability to come. The Cures Act delivered on time. There now the supply of regulated APIs, I learned, has exceeded the demand for applications ready to tap them, which is sort of a bizarre moment. But we're, we're in a really inverted technical moment not to mention the fact that we're all thinking about, imagine connecting Fire APIs and ChatGPT plugins. We could like unleash a productivity revolution like we've never seen before in healthcare. So that's sort of the enthusiastic voice going into Vive was sort of this moment we're in. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number two, we're at a fiscal crossroads. Congress is basically fed up, okay? We've been at this call it value-based care experiment for a decade. We've had modest aggregate returns, although pockets of very successful examples, uh, such as physician-led ACOs that have absolutely proven we can bend the cost curve, but we're just 
we're not where we need to be in aggregate impact. And so the overhang now of, I might rip the VBC machine out from under you and just sort of slash rates because it's what Congress knows how to do. So balanced budget act of what, 25, 26 is coming. Mm-hmm. And so this dilly-dallying sort of move to find a more private sector-led model of delivery reform that's more cost-effective, that can scale, is now facing some two-minute warning clock, if you will, to get moving. So that sort of chapter two. Mm-hmm. And then chapter three, we're absolutely in a that's a macro fiscal comment I made in terms of society. And now we're in a micro fiscal environment, which is the buyers, pharma, payers, providers, just have no capacity left for side of the desk experimentation. They need to put points on the board. Budgets are stretched thin. Core business functions are not as well managed as they should be. So there's a little bit of a all this you know excitement around digital digital health over the you know 5 years sit, you know prior is now kind of being forced into a what can you do for me now mode so i walked into vive aware of these three phenomenon and here's how i came out one i'm more bullish than i was going in about the pragmatic path to unlock a productivity revolution in healthcare. I see it. I don't know if it's one vendor to rule them all that wowed me, but I saw pieces and parts. I saw health system CIOs willing to begin using the infrastructure. I saw application developers looking to move from like bespoke implementations to more plug and play. And then I saw the possibility with generative AI and use cases that really got me thinking about the possibilities of how to put all of this together. So more bullish when I walked in. On the fiscal side, I'm bearish. I'm worried about the disconnect between the goal to get more people in ACOs 100% by 2030, which may see growth you know, on account of a variety of new tools that have come into play, but that they may not make the aggregate difference we need absent something that's going to push a little bit stronger. And so I'm I'm now like racing to th- sort out what the path should be to get value-based care um, more anchored on hitting the aggregate savings, which means embedding specialists into value-based care models. We've shown the success mm-hmm. of primary care. We need, we need, we need specialist integration. So I am personally obsessing with ways in which we can do a better job in managing CHF, AFib, COPD, et cetera. Last, I think to some degree, the discipline on the buy side of all this digital explosion is going to create more pragmatic uh, application uh, uh, purchasing decisions. Valuations will be under control. So we may see a little bit of like, who will emerge from this path will be the the team to bet on. And so it, it will likely leave a lot of folks behind, but it may bring the discipline the industry needs. So that that's broadly speaking uh, what I saw. And I will just share... I was wearing the Anish, pretending I'm still in the government hat. <laughs> and then I was also wearing the Anish care journey as sort of open infrastructure, open data for the move to value. And we saw an intense amount of interest in partnering to activate openly available data. Mark, yeah. I think 
by our, our big announcement with Transparent. So ha- happy to go into any direction. That's awesome. And, and before I keep going here with questions, I do want to, uh, so while well, folks can only see Anisha and I, uh, we do have a live audience. And so folks that are joining us, you know, feel free to ask questions in the chat. Um, and I'll try to see if I can uh, make sure I, I cover as many of those as possible. But Anisha, I, wanna, I actually want to go backwards a little bit because yeah, I've, I've had the privilege of hearing you speak several times about your journey to the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just find it fascinating. And so would love to have you share with us for a few minutes kind of how that all took place and, and, and what, what got you there. A lot, a lot of luck. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but if you, maybe I'll do one step back to get sure. to the- Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My job out of college was an analyst at Morgan Stanley and my colleagues, I was on the healthcare team. My colleagues in the tech team took Netscape public. And as we were kind of learning about that IPO, the roadshow, and I was sort of getting an insider look from my staff colleagues, I was blown away. And at that moment, I realized as much as I want to think about healthcare broadly, I became obsessed with the power of the internet as a platform to making the delivery model better. So my decade since you know my time uh, out of undergrad was all about like learning, studying, educating about this. At the advisory board company, I wrote studies on the internet. And Governor Warner, who's my guru, my mentor in Virginia, Governor Warner named me to the Medicaid board, but also created a task force on electronic health records back in 03, 04, hmm. kind of like, you know, pre kind of ONC's creation. And what I learned very quickly was that to make impact at scale, you kind of have to be in the public sector. And so the minute I had an opportunity, Governor Warner's successor was Governor Kane. He chose me to be a secretary of technology, not because I was a chest thumping, tech is the greatest thing on earth person, but rather I was trying to be a filter to understand how technology, data, and innovation would advance the governor's priorities on health, the environment, mm-hmm. education, transportation. And so it was that collaborator-in-chief role, he used to call me, where I could be that like friendly translator. Because a lot of times, folks that are expert in health, expert in education, just didn't quite understand or were briefed poorly on what the current state of art and technology was. So their limits were... They could only dream of what was limited. Mm-hmm. By bringing in that perspective, kind of from the parallel side, it had an impact. So when President Obama was a candidate, he was considering Governor Kane to be his running mate. And there was a New York Times story that said, if you want to look at how the president will govern or the candidate Obama would govern, look to the Commonwealth of Virginia. They called it the Virginia model, best managed state, best state for business. At the time, we won awards for being the most transparent. We built Virginia Performs metrics on every, like 30 key indicators in every facet of government. You could drill down to the neighborhood level to see how well your community was doing on these key key measures. And so that was a big part of my contribution was to sort of focus on performance management because the governor wanted it. You know, I, I, not my idea, his idea. I just try to execute. So I was on the transition team and I thought a Silicon Valley luminary would get the White House job. Obviously, this is like, you know, Obama, like we all worship at the altar. So I went and asked to be if I could be HHS CTO because I just that was the, the natural home for me. And so there was a kerfuffle with Senator Daschle's nomination to be Secretary of Health. So that got delayed. So I stayed in my Virginia seat, maybe longer than I expected, on account of this kerfuffle. 
Meanwhile, something happened at the White House. They didn't maybe find anyone in Silicon Valley they wanted, or I don't know what it was. And literally the very week I was going to accept the HHS CTO offer from Secretary Sebelius, I got invited to the White House on a Monday, grilled on like, did you cheat on this? Did you violate that? Are you a bad human being? You know, ethical review on Tuesday. They deliberated on me a Wednesday. The president selected me on Thursday and then filmed a YouTube video and disclosed it to the country on Saturday. So my path was like, whoa, Monday, yeah. Tuesday, Wednesday. That's a crazy Friday. week. Crazy week. And it was on my 10th year anniversary, my, my college reunion. So I'm sitting there with all my buddies, my brothers from Johns Hopkins at the like luncheon for the, you know, for the reunion and the president of the university say, yeah, hot off the press today, everybody, your own, you know, our own Anish made it to this. I was like, little tears, very exciting. That's amazing. So you get in and you're in the Obama administration as, as CTO of the United States. Uh, you know, what were some of the biggest challenges facing the nation at that time from a technology perspective? Well, let's be very clear. Economy, economy, economy. Okay. So the context here was we needed to pump stimulus into the economy because of the banking crisis. But President Obama was extraordinarily thoughtful. He said, I'm going to reserve at least $100 billion of the stimulus to make long-term, the name of the bill was the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. So the reinvestment part was about technological investments that would be foundational to the future. So we kind of wrote this strategy for innovation, which was kind of my job in the you know kind of funny way. And it said, look, we're going to use public dollars to reimagine what infrastructure for an innovation economy would look like. From roadways, railways, and runways to broadband, to R&D, to human capital, right? Foundation. Then we would build rules of the road around how to use digital infrastructure. And in that imagine, you could, you know, we were early days on social media, internet, but in the regulated sectors like health, how is a doctor supposed to use the internet to share medical health, medical information? So we didn't have like a roadmap to bring regulated industries into the internet economy. And that was a big part of my priority. So we put R&D money into what became the Smart on Fire protocol, which is now the Ubiquitous Cures Act. That $15 million R&D grant scaled. We put money into developing a safe, secure uh, a protocol for the electrical grid, and on and on. And then last but not least, and this is my first day assignment by President Obama, he had a bottom-up philosophy for change. And that was, yes, we're going to do top-down things, the Affordable Care Act, but we're going to have bottom-up opportunities. We're going to let doctors and hospitals collaborate, work together, form ACOs, have economic incentives. We got to unleash innovation bottom-up, and that's the heart and soul of open government. So if we could disseminate all of the practical uh, issues around what are, what's the evidence show about, you know, protocols that evidence care might deliver in workflow, right? If we have access to all of that uh, academic literature and can render in code, companies like yours can thrive and should thrive because that is what we do on open data. So that was my main objective was to make the data held by the government more publicly accessible on a foundation of rules and infrastructure. Love it. 
How was that for you? You know, if you came in, your lens was sort of maybe initially on healthcare, and obviously I know that's where your expertise is today. Like, how was that getting into the weeds on, you know, banking or energy or? I loved it. I loved it because the philosophy is very comparable. You don't have to be a subject matter expert to be able to distill the essence of the problem. So let me give you an example. Elizabeth Warren was an advisor to the president when he created the, in the Dodd-Frank legislation, we created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And she wasn't going to run it. She was going to advise its launch. And so I had lunch with her. uh, And I said, at the time, she was a uh, professor, Professor Warren, would you like to see the CFPB to be the first agency of the 21st century or the last to be born on the chassis of the 20th? Of course, that was an obnoxious thing to say. She was like, go, innovate, open government. So uh, I dispatched my deputy, Eugene Wong, and he basically borrowed in. And they like we met with like all my friends, Eric Reese from the Lean Startup and Tim O'Reilly, of course, the legend, DJ Patil, then chief data scientist at, at LinkedIn. We had this dinner. And I'll give you one anecdote. So you have a sense for what that experience was like. Congress said we should develop a cell phone, not a cell phone, a hotline, okay. a help desk. Call if you think you've been abused in the financial products industry. So Congress gave money and authority for this group to set up a call center. And I don't know, millions of dollars was going to be out, vendored out to like, you know, systems integrator in Washington, D.C., take your pick. And so at the dinner, Eric Reese turns to me and he says, what's the demand for consumer complaints into this hotline going to be? I'm like, well... Congress had a formula. They expected 10% of this to be that, iterating this way, that way. He goes, wouldn't you want to test and learn? And I said, say more. He said, let's, let's go for a walk. And so we were at dinner with like eight, 10 people. We walked over to the Twilio headquarters. CEO of Twilio, Jeff Lawson says, okay, what's the problem? Call center in complaining about financial products. Okay. He quickly spins up a little bit of a automated voice response survey instrument. And he says, okay, so what do you want to say? This, this, we branch logic something 15 minutes. And he says, okay, now here's your number. Boom. We could literally hand out flyers to every person in this neighborhood and to start getting feedback on what they're calling about and Mm -hmm. use the information to gauge what share of the population complained. What were the problems? What would you do about it? I was like blown away. I was like, what is this process? So we applied this to give you an example uh, we were there was a, a form everybody fills out when they buy a home, some ridiculously complicated form, and it would, had a lot of tricks and traps about how much you're going to pay and the interest rates would go up, and you didn't really understand it. So we had to build a new model form, and regulations take forever. So we created a I hate to say this an am I hot or not version of the form. So you could go on the web, we would show you form A and form B, and then ask you to give feedback. And we ran this thirty thousand people participated in a crowdsourcing approach to this rule. Long before we had a regulation, we had massive consensus around the process. The rule would not happen for another two years, but we knew what to do. So this is the, you know, kind of bring broad knowledge and understanding of what's possible and then take it to the key sectors of the of the uh, agencies. I love it. Almost like election polls. Why do we have more data on election polls than we do on, you know, other topics. Uh, Maternal mortality. What drives it? How? Why? What do we do? Preterm birth rates. What drives it? Maddening. Yeah. 
Well, one of the questions that came in uh, from LinkedIn, is change management and innovation harder in the government or private healthcare sector? That's a tough one because they're not, it's not about government or private sector. It's about CEO. So President Obama celebrated bottom-up change and called on all the agencies to do so. So give you a silly example. We wrote a direct, he wrote a day one directive, created my office and directed me to create an open government policy, essentially. So we wrote a memo and said, okay, agencies, you can now, your default setting is if it, if the data is available through FOIA, proactively publish it on data.gov. I'm oversimplifying, but that's essentially what we said. Two kids out of San Diego were trying to figure out what the fees were by employers to uh, buy financial advice, basically a 401k advisor. It's a disclosure in a form that's thousands of pages long and it goes to the Department of Labor. And so you couldn't really benchmark. I assume the fees are 1%. What do I know? And he was like, had to go to this library and physically in the Department of Labor. And at five cents a page, he had to like grab physical files and find the thing and Xerox it. And the day the order came out, I don't know if it was the day of, but call it roughly the day of, the librarian was like, would you like that in a CD-ROM for every single file? And he's like, you have this? You didn't, I I didn't know I was allowed to give it to you, but now I am, boom. And they found a $3 trillion excess fee problem because people were getting paid up to 10% fees when it should have been 1%. And that excess fees compounded against the growth in the what would have happened in your 401k, $3 trillion over a lifetime. Holy moly. So if the CEO believes in change, I don't care if it's the White House or a hospital system in the community, you'll get change done if you're not a jerk. Listen, embrace, collaborate. So I came to the conclusion that change is easy if you honor and respect the subject matter experts and you bring them together with the technological capabilities in a trusted way, not in a tech will drop in from on high and solve your problems, get out of the way, you peon. Like that's horrible attitude. But if you come in with the right attitude with governance, sky's the limit because the problems are big and we have to solve them. Yeah. Um, now, we may have talked about this a little bit as you were talking about sort of the lens that you went into Vive with, but what do you think are the biggest challenges in healthcare IT, right? Look, I would tell you the biggest challenges are legacy debt. And I'll put you on the spot. You built a thing before the new thing showed up. You and I experimented on the new thing, CDS Hooks hoping the EHR vendors would ship it. And it's the right thing to do. It'll scale more cost effectively, but chicken and egg, it's not regulated. It's not universally available. It's not in the Cures Act requirements. It's needed. We want to go. We need early adopters. We've got this inertia. So legacy debt is, I may not like that I did a thing, but I've been doing a thing for a decade, which is jerry-rigging connections, bespoke everywhere I can. And so 
it's kind of hard to like double down and reinvest everything from scratch when I've already got a thing. I can't both turn off the legacy thing and turn on the new thing cleanly. So what I observe, the reason I commented for the first time now, supply exceeds demand of interoperability resources is that everybody's been clamoring. I need Cures Act. I need Cures Act. I need clean APIs. I need this. I need that. Okay. 95% according to ONC of the certified EHRs met the requirement, 1231 hospitals are on it. it at Vive, I did like a facilitated discussion with Mickey Tripathi at ONC, maybe 75 people and a lot of CIOs. I asked them to raise hands. Raise your hand if a single third-party application has requested access your Cures Act APIs. How many hands went up? None. None. The consumer applications, fine, they work because that there's no contracting, procurement, it just on, instant on. But 95% of healthcare data sharing is B2B, subject to contract. That requires the Cures Act, like tweaks, empty. And, and it's going to be solved because new entrants are going to crush the incumbents because they can come in with better, faster, cheaper products. They're just not going to have a sales force. They're not going to have the, the fancy dinners and the big booths but they're going to crush it. So I've got my eyes on built for purpose, Cures Act Foundation, health IT applications that will displace incumbent solutions. And if I were going, I'd go long on, dis on, on that kind of uh, uh, disruption and I would short incumbents with deep pockets and uh, heavy investments in sales and marketing. Do you think, you know, obviously the government pushed hard on meaningful use in the adoption of EHRs. Do, do you think they need to push harder on this interoperability? So, no, I, 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 the lazy answer would be, oh, yes, more incentives, push harder, double down. No, supply exceeds demand right now. Regulators regulate the supply. Those EHRs now are compliant. 95%. I could look up every single EHR. Now it's on the use cases to drive it. It'll take half a dozen CIOs starting to demonstrate that the water is warm on the other side. And I don't think ONC needs to regulate that. I think CMS, FDA, CDC, the VA, they need to use it because they have use cases that need it. Mm -hmm. Why has CMS delayed the evidence for uh, imaging, the, the PAMA model? Burden? Yeah. We can unleash the model at lower burden. Let's go. Absolutely. Uh, and it brings up the question of uh, whenever you go to a conference, there's always the chatter on the floor. And, you know, AI is, is often part of that chatter. And obviously, chat GPT is now, you could almost do a, a, a drinking game, you know, because it gets brought up every 10 to 15 minutes. What's your perspective on that? You know, is, is it Obsessed. ready to go? Obsessed. Is it Obsessed. obsessed. Okay. I'm obsessed. So, uh, if but, you have a session on ChatGPT, ChatGPT with CIOs, you know they're they're scared out of their mind because yeah, we don't have rules of the know, road. So yeah, where's the balance? Yeah. Hold on. So we just got to be thoughtful. This is not complicated. Like rings of the circus or the what's in the safest outer ring? Let me ask you a practical question. You're a doctor. Patient comes into your office has a bunch of social needs. Everyone's talking about social determinants of health. They've got an MA plan. Do you know if that MA plan offers that doctor or that patient a, um, a benefit of meals voucher? Nope. 
How many years are we going to have to wait for there to be some regulation that mandates social needs benefits have to be made available the same way that insurance eligibility verification has to be made available? Are we going to wait for that? Yeah. It, it or, all needs to be, yeah. or it's disclosed. It's in, the, it's in all the filings when they filled their MA plan, they filed for CMS. I'm going to offer this supplemental benefit for social needs. Uh, it's in the documents that a human is supposed to read whenever they have the time. Boom. Chat GPT plugin. Hey, help me find out if this person's got benefits that can help them, that will help their lives. Why don't we do that? No PHI. Second question. One layer in. Care Journey spends a lot of its time on provider directories. And more importantly, we're the report card for providers, not so much the phone book. But the same it's the same issue. I need to find a doctor in my network. Congress, every single year for the last five years, has passed some legislation that says, fix these things. They're wrong. The phone numbers are wrong. The address is wrong. The doctor's not in the network. They're not seeing new patients. This is a solvable problem. There's this thing called the internet, Google Maps. So doctors are updating their Google Maps so you can get to the clinic, but they're not bothering to update this, the back end of insurance yeah. plan number 23, whose database is outdated because they've got the billing address and not the clinic. Why are we making the doctor fill it out for the 23rd time? Grab it from the internet. Let's go use the stuff that's already out there. Let's yeah. get a more accurate provider directory built not because there's one database to rule them all, but because we can read all the existing openly available databases and render judgment. That's a great use case. Let's go there. And then last but not least, we will start to understand disease progression. We're having this multi-billion dollar debate. Today's Friday. Watch Monday. CMS will release the final rule on Medicare Advantage risk adjustment which was the most significant economic decision of 2023 for healthcare. Well, second, the Medicaid unwinding breaks my heart. This other piece, opportunity, uh, also is t challenging because it's going to cut $10, $12 billion out of the system. And it'll most of that's going to come on the backs of plans and providers who serve patients in underserved populations. So let's see what happens on Monday. But you're going to start to get at the question of what are the characteristics of a patient who is under current course and speed going to have more disease progression, more visits to the hospital, more visits to the ER, but for a better coordinated care experience. That's the whole point of risk adjustment. This patient is going to become more expensive in the future. We'll pay you more to manage their condition now. Mm -hmm. Claims data is a blunt instrument to figure that out. Incorporating clinical data and unleashing some of the analytic power that we're seeing should get us to the right answer faster. So the answer is not, let's eliminate risk adjustment and go back to like crazy town where disease goes undetected and people, you know, crash into dialysis in the ER with more frequency. Right. Let's do it. Let's double down on risk adjustment to do it right. I wrote a piece with Adam Bowler and Gary Becker about this issue a few months ago. And then we've been diving deep on the uh, care journey on the on the uh, V28 model, got a bunch of content on our blog. So I think ChatGPT needs to be introduced thoughtfully with guardrails. Mm -hmm. It's not going to come from the regulators. We're going to have to do that 
as an industry to come up with codes of conduct. And we've done it before with the Karen Alliance and consumer de designated apps. I'm ready to roll up my sleeves. Let's go again on applications that maybe the chat GPT plugins or something that give us a, a framework for how to uh, govern these, these uh, amazing tools. Yeah. Now you've been a, a big fan of, of, of the Blue Button initiative. And um, you know, for those who may not be aware of what that is, give us a, a brief description of what the Blue Button initiative is and then sort of, uh, do you think it has fulfilled what the hope for it was? It's a noun, not a verb, and of course not but I'm hopeful. So let me now, you know, get, get, get into the explanation. I, uh, as I alluded to earlier, cared a lot about the power of the internet, which means iterate, learn, feedback, improve, iterate, learn, feedback, improve. So we were going after the, obviously the beginnings of the EHR investments. It was, I don't know, January of 2010. We were big fans of the Markle Foundation. I was a big fan of theirs going into the administration. And they held a meeting in, I believe, in New York. I did not attend, but uh, Todd Park, my guru, Peter Levin, my brother, the CTO of the VA and HHS, respectively, went to that meeting with famous people like Adam Bosworth, who effectively invented XML. And in that room, Adam Bosworth was speculating why can't I have access to my own data? It's a HIPAA right. Why can't there be a button on my portal, maybe a blue button that would help me get my information and organize it for my benefit, not based on what you paternalistically think you should tell me about my data? And the both of them came back to me and were like, lots of meetings that are uh, bland. This one was legit. And let's do something. And I was like, this makes a lot of sense. Let's start moving. And my role to some degree was to sort of be a conduit for the president on when to invoke the power of the president. So he was going to give a speech in August to the disabled veterans of America, mostly to announce the end of the war, bringing back the troops. But there was interest in doing something in healthcare. And so I had nominated that we should announce that we're going to do a blue button program. And I was big into this 90 days thing. Like in 90 days, we're going to do this and it'll you know, make life a better place. So that was our, our mantra. And I remember vividly the speechwriters sent a message like they have to, to the VA secretary. And their process internally was like, don't say this. We can't commit to it. It's too hard. And I called Peter. I was like, Peter, is this really hard? He goes, it's not technically hard. You're creating a text file on data we already have. It's, it's a mental hard. Like It's not how we've been thinking about traditional B2B clearing houses and data sharing. But no, I believe this is achievable. And if the president says it, I'll put my hand in the proverbial fire and commit. And Peter will be my forever brother from another mother because I then used the trump card of reporting to the president, overriding the recommendation, and I said, hit go on the statement. President announces it, second loudest applause line of the speech, Todd got Medicare live, VA went live, and I think there was like some kludgy DOD PDF version that went live because they didn't want to be left out. All made it in 90 days and launched on Veterans wow. Day wow. in November of 2010. So. 
That was the noun, the ability to download a text version of what is essentially a personal health record. That quickly evolved to a download what was called the continuity of care document, a clinical description of the EHR information. And then as we progress to Blue Button 2.0, which is now we're getting into the modern internet era, that became an API to essentially your, your core data. And that's what we have today, Blue Button APIs. That's called the Patient Access API for health plans. And it's the effectively the Patient Access API for certified EHR systems. And it's been ubiquitous now for more than three, five years. 2018, I think they began coming to, into the wild. You know, the, that whole topic of I, your own you that they were not. Yeah, but Brian, I, was, okay. I, I told you that I was not as enthusiastic about it because I had hoped that there would be a smorgasbord of apps not to be the storage locker for your data, yeah, yeah. but to be the decision support to guide you on the use of the data. Mm-hmm. I refer to that as a health information fiduciary. And I'm like dying to see that industry evolve. And I'm hopeful, hopeful, hopeful. And that's another use case for ChatGPT that just has me beaming with hope that I can, my mom could get the benefits of an advisor that's gone through some governance to, to give her some advice as to where to go next. Yeah, no, that's that's an awesome segue because I was just going to ask sort of on that same topic of blue button and being able to access your own records, you know, some of the you know, the big tech giants have have tried to create their own, you know, on your phone personal health record and and they get a few years into it and and they walk away and abandon it. You know, so so where have, is the market not there? Do the patients really not want No, it? no one's aban- no, they haven't abandoned it. No, no, no. Let me clarify the message. You're going a decade back. Google Health and Microsoft Health Vault were ab- abandoned. They were ahead of their time. That was before any of these pipes were built. So they had to deal with $100,000 connections per hospital and it just didn't scale for the custom connections. Back to my point about legacy debt. They didn't have a business model that allowed for that investment to be ROI led. Whereas other B2B transactions on revenue cycle and other things did have ROI even with the $100,000 implementation fee. So this is a moment in time where Apple Health and Common Health have created this ubiquitous layer for consumer apps to have a very, you don't have to rebuild any of that last mile connectivity. We can now build apps that access the Apple Health locker to deliver evidence care for consumers on Apple Health is a possibility. On Common Health is a possibility. So I think it's more of a mindset and a business model constraint than it is a technical barrier to do what Google Health and Health Vault tried to do a decade ago, mostly in the locker use case to a decision support use case on the regulated infrastructure. We got another question here from the audience. So EHRs have built the pipes. Is the next uh, improvement gonna be EHR 2.0 that drives value? Or do you think it's gonna be the intermediaries who drive value, uh, you know, external apps outside of the EHRs or plugged into the EHRs. Here, there's a statement, which is that the EHRs are not one and the same. It's pretty obvious Epic has become the dominant player amongst the health systems. 
and it can spend more of its time on application layer innovation, in which case they may wish to capitalize on 2.0, 3.0. The long tail of EHRs that are just doing their base jobs will probably be commoditized with applications that ride on top. So it's going to be a really interesting uh, couple of years to figure out, will there be substitutable applications that can at scale compete with otherwise the challenges of I can't live in a world where I only have access to Epic data. Can't, I can't do value-based. So does Epic get there first in aggregating other EHR records into a longitudinal record or do uh, third-party apps do that and kind of outmaneuver Epic uh, on extracting its data into their thing? The regs are clear, open pipes, we're gonna compete. But inertia, sales, in the international trade world, I was educated on a term, non-tariff trade barriers. So there may not be a technical barrier, but there may be non-tariff trade barriers, cultural or otherwise, that would allow some of the incumbents to be the right of first refusal, so to speak, on the killer app. But I'm actually bullish that there's going to be a yes and. Yes, some EHRs will be thriving in 2.0, and we'll see new entrants that can come across horizontally that build incredible experiences for patients. And it's going to be a battle on the value-based care side, because the battle is to assemble the longitudinal record on which you can effectively run decision support. And so who gets to the longitudinal record first? I bet ACOs. And then the question is, what's the technology that ACOs will designate to be that back-end platform? Could be a cloud platform as an app store layer, could be an EHR platform, and it could be one of these emerging platforms that are getting traction, uh, you know, um, like an Innovacer or a Redox or someone that's got kind of a, has the potential to build that kind of data layer. Mm -hmm. You know, for those that aren't aware of Care Journey and what you guys do, you know, how would you describe what you do at Care Journey and what kinds of things are you guys really excited about right now? So we ultimately want to be, give every consumer via applications or organizations they trust information on where to go to get high value care. My objective is to guide people at every step of their care journey as a wholesaler through distributors, which are the trusted institutions that they rely upon. And my bet today is to trust uh, the ACOs where we can help guide them on A, who the best uh, specialists are for a condition, B, how to assemble the best primary care network to be in the ACO in the first place, and then C, to kind of begin thinking about a little bit more of a personalization engine, because it's not like all patients are the same, nor is it that all orthopedic surgeons are the same. We have to peel that onion back to say, this group of people that suffers from osteoarthritis has a set of doctors that are really good at caring for that group of people relative to their peers in this market. So we tap publicly available data, the 140 million link longitudinal records that are controlled by Medicare, Medicaid, Medicare Advantage that are all available for researchers to access. I think we are the dominant researcher, commercial innovative researcher on that CMS data set. We then extract 
profiles of doctors, ACOs, facilities using this sort of longitudinal care benchmarking. And then we provide them in a database that folks can access and use for any number of, of, of partnerships. The announcement we made with Transparent is probably the ultimate example of where this is going to help employees. Transparent's going to use our data and their own expertise to identify the highest quality facilities, highest quality surgeons, highest quality outpatient kind of experiences that are powered by our data sets, but organized so they can be actionable to physicians making referral recommendations or patients looking to find a doc natively in their transparent application. So that's like the dream example of what we do for now 150 uh, membership organizations. Love it. Well, one more question here before we wrap things up. Uh, I know we've already talked about AI and chat GPT, but those off the table, give me one more thing that you're really excited about, maybe that you saw at Vive or that just is something that is, is coming, that you're seeing coming in healthcare that's got you jazzed. Maybe I didn't see it. Maybe I wanted to see it, but I'll come back to it. I think there's going to be an untethered health information fiduciary. So imagine I had the power of ChatGPT in my pocket. And I could bring in my claims history and my EHR records, and it could run a library of decision support to guide me, untethered from my doctor, from my plan, uh, from Walmart, Walgreens. And so it could be distributed by stakeholders, but it could be designed to optimize to my needs, not to the sponsor's needs who gave me the application. Yeah, so you're saying in the hands of the patient. Yeah. In the hands of the patient. It's the ultimate vision of Blue Button. Mm-hmm. And so President Obama said it actually best. He said, uh, the American people have the right to their information and to the applications and services that can help them make sense of it. So I did see in the sidelines of Vive, physicians showing me little apps that they can build to kind of go down that road. Not that they're well capitalized with fancy brochures and so forth, but that I'm beginning to see the kind of creativity we wish to see on top of the openly available data. So that I did leave Vive with hope that there's that is not an academic exercise. There's 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 something cooking here. Yeah. That's great. Well, Anish, thank you so much for joining us today. I would encourage everyone uh, who's in the audience and who listens to the recorded version of this to take a look at Anish's book, Innovative State. It is very easy to find on Audible. I found it in about five seconds and have been listening to it for the last few weeks. And uh, it is fascinating. A great history lesson along the way as you go through things in the book. But uh, where should folks follow you if they want to learn more about you, follow you, or learn more about Care Journey? Yeah, uh, carejourney.com. Twitter is probably where I'm a little bit more active on policy issues. And then I think I'm at Anish Chopra on Twitter. And then I will say for the entrepreneurs and innovators out there, I've joined the Health Tech Nerds Slack community where I have more direct messaging and engagement. And I think that could be a really interesting place for folks that want to build that health information fiduciary to to gather. So I've been a big fan of bottom-up communities and the next generation of of leaders has sort of emerged with this concept of of HTN. I love it. I think it's a, a great place for folks to interact. It's about getting a coalition of the willing. If you wish to be an early adopter, signal to me that you want to be an early adopter on any of these things. Let's get folks to see the light that these capabilities can make a difference in people's lives. 
That's awesome. I didn't know about that Slack group. I'm going to have to go join that. Yes, sir. So awesome. Well, Anish, great seeing you. And, and thank you again for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.